Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Asian Americans. This is your host, Jerry Wan, and welcome to episode 90. Today is December 22nd. We're just a few days away from Christmas. And wherever you are and whenever you may be listening to this, I wish you all the health and happiness. It is, It has been a challenging year for so many of us. But with Christmas here around the corner and the new year just beyond that, uh, we really wish you all the hope that you want and for all the things that you want to work right in your life to happen. And so we want to share this episode with you about a really great guy, a friend of mine, Marshall Cho, who's used his love of basketball and his craft of basketball as a son of an immigrant to really change the narrative of what it means to be an Asian American um, in a sport that we really don't see each other in. And so it's timing is amazing. Um, didn't plan on it, but turns out that today is the beginning of the brand new NBA basketball season. So it's appropriate that we share this story um, about the Korean American head basketball coach of the Lake Oswego team in Oregon, the Lakers, and hear what it means to be a coach and hear what it means to be one of the only ones in his sport. And so wishing you and your loved ones well and Really hope you enjoy this episode. And this Sunday is the very first ever Asian Podcast Awards program. Um, more than 66 podcasts have submitted for nomination. We've narrowed that down to 35 finalists. We are in the middle of the voting process right now through our friends at the Asian Podcast Network. And on this Sunday, uh, we'll be announcing for the first time ever 15 award winners of the Asian Podcast Awards. And so we invite you to join us. You can learn more at AsianPodcastAwards.com and RSVP for the event there. So again, thanks so much for tuning in. Brings me so much pleasure to now share with you my conversation with Coach Marshall Cho. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Years of Americans. And whenever you are listening to this from wherever, uh, we wish you health and safety and happiness you're probably listening to this in the middle of December as we round out what has been, to say the least, a very interesting year, um, a year filled with fear, a year filled with um, really unfortunate experiences for many of us, um, but also a year that's really given us some time to uh, repurpose and refocus on what is important in life. And perhaps uh, we've all gotten the chance a little bit more uh, to think about what's really important in life and also especially spend a little bit more time with our families. Uh, one thing that has actually been sort of absent for the majority of the first half of this year, um, although we saw a big resurgence of it and continue to see it, is professional sports. And for many, sports is a topic that is a form of entertainment for us. Um, it keeps us happy. It keeps us engaged. It actually brings us together. Um, and we generally tend to focus on the athletes when we talk about sports. Obviously, they are the very high, well-paid stars that have feats and have worked hard all their lives to do what they do on the court, on the field, to bring us excitement. What we often don't talk about, unfortunately, is the immense industry and group of people that make those athletes who they are. And so I'm talking about the coaches. And many of you who are listening participated likely in some sort of sports when you were a kid. I play baseball, I play basketball. And we were always coached by, you know, usually uh, a dad of somebody or you know, neighborhood somebody, or if you played in high school. What we didn't see, and what we still don't see in America today, are people who look like us in those fields uh, to guide us, because coaching at that level especially is a lot more than just sports. It is our mentor, it is our father figure, it is the people that we actually look to 
give us life guidance. So really, really, really excited, getting geeked out over this as we speak, um, to share this conversation with Marshall Cho, who is the head basketball coach of Lake Oswego High School in like Lake Oswego, Oregon. That name might sound familiar to some of the basketball folks out there, um, but it is a really, really cool, uh, it's a big deal, I think, that somebody who looks like us um, has that role. And I would love to explore so many things about being an Asian American in sports and all things. And so, as you probably think every episode, Jerry, stop talking, get to the guest. So we're going to do that. And uh, Marshall, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jerry. Thanks so much for having me. How has 2020 been for you guys? And for you, uh, obviously for you and your family, but also speak to us a little bit on how it's been for your student athletes. Yeah, if we rewind back, we had just finished our playoff game. This is March uh March 12th, I believe, um, or the weekend prior, we had qualified for the state tournament for a second year, year in a row, um, a big deal for us. We're in the state quarterfinals. Um, you mentioned the history of the program here. Um, for those who are listening out there, you know, our claim to fame is that Kevin Love graduated, attended and graduated from here um, and generally regarded as the best high school basketball player to come out of our state. Um, but even despite all those accolades, having been national player of the year and whatnot, um, our, our school only has one state title. And so I, I've just finished my sixth year, uh, fifth year going into our sixth. And it was a chance to, for my seniors to redeem themselves the year before they had lost in the, in the state semifinal game. Um, and so for them to lose out on that opportunity, their, their quarterfinal game was actually canceled the, the morning of. Um, so pretty devastating, uh, for, for those young student athletes and really just like the rest of the general population, you know, we've been trying to make sense of it, trying to find our purpose, meaning community, um, a sense of belonging, you know, in a time where fear is heightened. Um, so for, for the student athletes, what I find found, um, to be encouraging is that they've been really resilient. Um, hopefully it's a reflection of, you know, maybe a part of my leadership, um, or and, and the leadership and the service of the coaching staff. Um, but yeah, it's been a, it's been a tough one. It's still unknown as to if we will be able to have a season as you guys are all seeing out there, you know, um, there's a lot of cancellations at the co collegiate level. Um, we don't have the kind of budget <laughs> for testing and whatnot for high schools. So it's to be, um, to be determined, but in the meantime, trying to make the most of the time, connecting with them online, you know, in person with masks and socially distanced and what, you, what have you. That's awesome. Um, for me, when our, our friend's son, uh, who's been a guest on this show prior, um, had connected what connected us, um, it was really exciting because it's not every day that you get to hear of a Korean-American and Asian-American head basketball coach at a prominent program um, at, at the levels that you play at. And so really excited to dive into how that came about when you first fell in love with basketball. And so to help us better understand the Marshall that it is today, want to start back a little bit earlier in the journey and then share with us how the Cho family immigrated to America. How old were you um, around? When was it? And sort of give us a context of growing up early in Marshall's life. I was born in 1976 in Jeju Island in, uh, in South Korea. Um, my mom was pregnant with me. She's originally from the island. And as tradition would have it, when she became pregnant, even though they were my wife, uh, my wife, my mother and father were living in Seoul, she flew down during her pregnancy and had me there. And then and then came and and, and I grew up in Seoul. Um, but for the last three years before uh, moving to America in 1986, I was almost 10 years old. We lived in Jeju Island. 
So that's where my grandfather had a orange farm that that he labored under to send his seven children all through college, um, which is rare back in those days, as you can understand. Um, and I had a pretty idyllic childhood. Um, and so from there, we moved to Springfield, Oregon, of all places. My grand aunt, Homo Harmony, as you would say, um, she had married an American GI earlier. She had been uh, I believe the second Korean American to ever immigrate to the Eugene Springfield area. Um, and so she was pretty well established. Um, we ended up moving there um, and we grew up. My, I have a younger brother who's uh, two years younger than me. He was eight, I was 10, and I have a younger sister who was um, three years old. So from there, we, we attended the public school system uh, in Springfield, Oregon, as luck would have it. Uh, the apartment complex that my dad the job that he had was being a manager of a 54 unit apartment complex. Mm. Both my parents worked it. Um, in some sense, you know, it wasn't the typical Korean American, you know, immigrant experience in terms of whether you were, you came over through medicine, you know, or through academics, or you came and you were more in the blue collar, you know, kind of day-to-day -day grind of the dry cleaners or grocery stores. Right. Um, you know, the grind was there for sure, um, but it also allowed my parents to have a presence in our lives. We had dinner, you know, we were able to have dinner every day because their job was, you know, where they were living. Right. Um, so, um, but yeah, fortunate to have just had access to a public park right across the street where my brother and I, you know, fought mm. and played and, and scrapped, you know, over all sorts of different sports growing up. I think it's really unique that you're from Jeju. Um, it's a place, mm -hmm. I think, at least for the Korean Americans listening, it's a place that you always visit, uh, yeah. but you rarely meet people from there. And the oranges from Jeju Island, oh my God, those are some of the best. Uh, called halabong. And if you haven't had them, run, run to your, uh, I don't know if it's in season or not, but when it is, run through your Korean market and get some because they're really, really delicious. Um, yeah. Eugene, Oregon, also not the most, uh, maybe even today, diverse place in the world. How was that like? What, what were some of your earliest memories in terms of just, I guess when you came at 10 years old, um, I moved uh, to America when I was eight. So you understand everything, um, or at least you understand the surface level things that are happening. You may not understand the deeper reasons why, but what was that like? Were there other um, folks of color? Were there other, you know, um, other non-Korean Asian folks within the community? Did that grow as you were there? Yeah, not the most diverse place, you know, and just to even unpack a little bit, you know, there's there's a distinction between Eugene and Springfield. You know, Eugene is where University of Oregon is, you know, um, based out of Springfield, just right next door, happened to be more of a blue collar lumber mill town. So mm. I think a lot of us have, you know, experienced that where you might be just one town over and the other town, you know, maybe looks down on, you know, the, the country farm boys or, you know, <laughs> uh, the hicks from Springfield or whatever you have. It. I mean, the claim to fame for Springfield is, you know, Matt Gronig, who is the creator of The Simpsons. You know, he, the, I know every Springfield out there, the Illinois, the Massachusetts <laughs> of the world want to claim The Simpsons, but, you know, I'm just going to put it out there. I guess it's the coach in me. I'm a little competitive, but <laughs> Springfield, Simpsons Springfield is actually from Springfield, Oregon. So let's not get that twisted. <laughs> but, you know, even, even going be before that, you mentioned Cheju, and I'm very proud of it, um, ha of having been born there. Because a lot of people, again, if I put it down on my resume, where are you from? I would say Seoul, South Korea. But, mm. you know, just because by nature, people don't know where Cheju is. But, you know, in terms of what you said about growing up in 1986 in Springfield, Oregon, 
it was a different political climate than what we've experienced in the last four years. And, mm. and the sense of acceptance uh, for an immigrant was incredible. I had amazing teachers. My classmates all accepted me. Um, I was pretty proficient at soccer, which, you know, immediately, you know, that's a popularity contest where if you're good in sports, <laughs> you know, acceptance is a, is a, is a, is a deal breaker. So yeah. um, I learned at an early age that that was important and probably explains why I went into basketball later on. But, you know, I, I do want to bring up the fact that one of the places where I really experienced maybe, I wouldn't go as far to say bullying, but where I felt ostracized because when I moved to Jeju at seven years old, um, I experienced probably, you know, the kind of rejection from the Jeju community because I was a mm. city boy. I, I ah. couldn't speak the dialect, I, local right. dialect. I couldn't speak this Hatturi. Um, and so, you know, my neighborhood growing up, actually, it was kind of a lonely experience. I went to a private school where, you know, I was 30 minutes away, got on a bus and, and within the school structure with my 59 other classmates uh, was really, a, you know, it's a wonderful experience. But in terms of my neighborhood experience, um, I, I, I was looking forward to a brand new start. And in that sense, um, the life in Springfield, Oregon did not disappoint. I, I want to give uh, our listeners, um, I know I often don't talk about myself here on the show, um, but my wife is from a city down the highway um, in Corvallis, Oregon, and had immigrated around the same time that you did, Marshall. And, um, you know, the stories that I hear from her is, is very similar, that it was a very open and inviting culture. Um, I would also attribute that a little bit to uh, both Eugene and Corvallis being large uh, research institutions where they, uh, maybe not residents, but they have had for a very long time a very diverse international student population and very highly educated people as a result of those universities and the people who work there. And so, you know, um, just purely based on location, if you look at it on a map, it's like, okay, it's two or three hours outside of a major city. Uh, it may not be as um, open or as what we stereotypically think about small American towns, but, you know, Oregon, um, I guess outside of a lot of the unfortunate things that we've heard about Portland during the last few months, very, very great people in an open environment, um, especially, you know, on, on cities up and down the five or up and down uh, the coastal parts on the Western part. So tell us about basketball. When, when did you, did, did you play a lot? How did you transition from soccer to basketball? Um, or I guess before that, did you even play basketball in Korea? Was no. that a thing? No, no, not a thing there. No. So yeah, I, I, I got introduced to it again. It, it helps when, you know, this is again, back in the late eighties, early nineties, when people still played basketball, pick up basketball on the blacktop. So, mm -hmm. you know, the neighbor in the neighborhood, all the, all the middle school, high school, you know, some of the college kids who would come back, you know, older adults would play pickup basketball. And the first time I, I ventured out to the court was in fourth grade. So I had been in the States for maybe six months, perhaps. Mm. Um, by then, you know, at a young age, I had picked up the language I could get by. Um, and my parents bought me a basketball. And that's, you know, it's a simple, simple deal. You know, I think, again, we were in a situation where my parents weren't making a lot of money. They were around, but they were working a lot. So, you know, my brother and myself, you know, we had a lot of time on our hands. Um, and my sister would tag along on occasion, you know, when we were playing tennis, she would be our ball girl and that type of thing. But in terms of the basketball piece, you know, you could just go and work on it, work on the game on your own. And, you know, I think a lot of people in their mid forties, you know, my age or even your age can relate. Um, 
you know, the Saturday mornings will be watching inside stuff with Ahmad Rashad and, you know, Summer Sanders or, um, and then you would go out and you would pretend to be Michael Jordan. You'd, you'd pretend to be for me, it was Isaiah Thomas. It was, you know, Kenny Anderson. It was, it was trying to be, you know, one of those point guards working on their moves every day. So, um, fell in love with it almost obsessively. Um, but at the same time, I didn't have access to organized basketball until seventh grade. Um, so there was, there was a lot of street ball flavor <laughs> to my game that my middle school coaches, you know, try to stomp out. Um, again, I'd love to talk more about how as coaches or mentors, you know, um, I think it's important to celebrate the creativity and, and the young people that we're working with. But, you know, at the same time, you have to be a part of the team structure and, and whatnot. So how, how important was basketball through your junior high school and high school careers? Did you did you play on the school teams? And was there a point where you had entertained the idea of taking it seriously enough to make it your primary objective coming out of high school? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, again, you know, you're a kid, you don't know any better. You know, in middle school, I told my parents that I would go to the NBA and I tell the story sometimes, you know, I told, I promised my mother that, you know, I would make it to the NBA and buy her a Volvo. You know, I think that's when you made it, right? So you, we just had the NBA draft uh, this past week. You know, you see these NBA first round, second round draft picks, you know, buying their parents, you know, a, a brand new car or house, you know, and that was my dream even, in, you know, as a seventh grader. But I tapped out, unfortunately, at five feet, eight inches. <laughs> um, you know, I, was, I wasn't going to be the first Korean spud web, but, um, I, I did play pretty seriously. Um, at the same time, again, this is an era different than what we live in today where, you know, you didn't feel the pressure to specialize. So I was a pretty decent athlete, at least in the high school sense. So I was a captain of the soccer team, captain of the basketball team, captain of the tennis team. So I ended up being a three sport athlete. Um, and really uh, my senior year, I tore my ACL. I had a serious injury, about four games left in my high school se- senior season. And so that was pretty devastating. But, it, you know, I, I, perhaps if I had a you know, coach who would, who would have shown me the way, I'd, I'd most likely play D3 basketball, Division, division three basketball um, at the minimum. But I ended up uh, getting injured um, and ended up enrolling at University of Oregon um, and, you know, moving on from there. And so you... When you knew that basketball wasn't going to be a professional endeavor opportunity, at least on the playing side, many many of us have that realization once we stop growing or realize that our, our skills only take us so far. Um, and as obviously you go from high school to college, college to the pros, um, the, the skill level that is expected or at least demanded to play there, or exponential almost. Um, what other things were you encouraged to think about and was there always in your mind a way that you wanted to work basketball back into your life professionally? Um, but talk to me about what you then decided to do at U of O, um, which is a big sports school has always been. Um, obviously, you understand the relationship with with Nike and the founder Phil Knight over there. What did you want to do, and then what did you study in college that sort of was the not basketball option? Yeah. Uh, before I hopped on with you, we were, I was joking that I was going to turn this around and interview you <laughs> and turn these questions back on you but you know the coach in me I guess uh, but you know I did do some research on just <laughs> I didn't do a lot of research but I, I I did listen in on a handful of interviews and I think the theme of you know the, the parental expectations and all, all of those things you yeah. know I'm sure 80 something episodes in it's just come up constantly yeah um, I was fortunate 
Um, so you ask about my what my goals were in Oregon. Uh, my parents didn't push me very hard um, mm. academically. I mean, they did, but you know, we I I did well enough. You know, three point eight, three point nine, while juggling you know sports that that they can kind of stay off my back a little bit. Um, but I ended up going to the University of Oregon because again, I'm the oldest of three children. I think this this theme has come up before. I'm also the oldest of you know the oldest male of three generations. Uh, yeah. So, you know, having grown up in Korea, even though I, I became Americanized, I assimilated and I, I grew up in, you know, in Springfield, Oregon, I, at the core of who I was, I had this sense of duty for, you know, getting the stable job and, and, and providing for my family. So um, I decided to be a business administration major, accounting concentration. Um, again, one of those wake up moments where your senior year, you know, you're looking at your transcripts as you're applying for Arthur Anderson's and the Deloitte and Touche of the world, and your accounting grades are C plus <laughs> for the most part, <laughs> and and my and my liberal arts, you know, uh, social sciences grades are all straight A's. So somebody should have steered me in the right direction. But um, I did have a come to Jesus moment when I got all these rejection letters, um, and you know, the final straw came. I was uh, at the at the career center on campus, prepping for a job interview with Intel. Um, mm. Fortunately, the summer before, I had a pretty prestigious internship at Boeing that I got, that I had a job, mm. you know, secure job that I could return to. Um, and so kind of going that route, and then I saw a brochure for a, a program called Teach for America, mm. literally right before I went into the interview room. And I opened up the brochure, and there was this diverse array of, you know, Asian, Hispanic, African-American, you know, um, teachers, male and female. And there was a female um, teacher, an Asian looking, you know, teacher in this, in this lineup uh, of people. And I thought to myself, that could be me. Mm. That looks, that looks fun. Um, and so uh, ironically, I, I ended up getting rejected from all these accounting firms, but I got into Teach for America, which was harder to get into than any right, of those yeah. uh, jobs that I was competing for. Um, but what I had realized looking back on my resume was, you know, it had been filled with being a Sunday school teacher, being a summer mm. camp counselor. You know, I, the coach in me, the teacher in me was always there. My mother's passion was to be an art teacher. She gave that up so that she could raise us. And, mm. and she gave that she gave that opportunity up when, even when she was in Korea so that her younger siblings could attend college. So I think it was in our blood. Um, you know, I, again, I've heard a lot of your listen uh, interviews where you know every you know Asian American has to confront their parents and say, "Hey, you know, you wanted me to go <laughs> down this route, but I'm going. Yeah. I'm taking a another turn." Um, when I had that conversation with my parents, my my mom literally said, "I thought you could have been a teacher all along." Whoa. So again, it That's goes to cool. show you. Yeah, it goes to show you that you probably should have communicated and been been more open. Um, yeah. But again, I I had it made up in my mind even before I had consulted with my parents that I was going down the business route. When again, it wasn't my calling to be a teacher. Yeah, I, I think the the whole expectations of what we think our parents want for us. Mm -hmm. um, I think you nailed it on the head. It is largely due to a lack of communication, right? Like a lot of the things that we think our parents want are things that we've convinced ourselves is that what it, you know, based on the things that they have, they have said maybe in passing that they weren't serious, but when you're younger, you take everything to heart or when they praise publicly 
another family member or somebody in the community who goes to a certain school or who does some certain things, we then get conditioned to be like, okay, like mom says so-and-so is that, and it seems to be really happy. And so maybe that's my thing too, but no parent and we're all, we're both, you know, fathers now, like we don't want, we only want the best for our kids. Right. Mm-hmm. And also recognizing that trying to raise us in a new country, in a new culture, in a different generation, um, they don't have all the information. They don't have all the facts to help us decide what it is that we really want. And so I think it's critically important to also mention that as we talk about jobs and careers and expectations, that they always want what's best for us. And I hope that we are the generation that changes what it means to have conversations openly and authentically with their own children, no matter how old they are, um, to make decisions together, you know, and this is not, you know, not every show is about finding that one moment for a lot of us who decided, okay, mom said, go this way. And I want to go that way. Right. Because that's not the case for a lot of us either. But, but the fact that so many of us feel that pain of uh, that expectation and that burden set on us, and we have to go through that process to decide for ourselves that it isn't. It is something that I hope it's uh, something that we talk about less and less as a community, as an entire generation of folks trying to raise our next generation of kids, because um, the world's going to be different. I mean, have you know, ninety percent of the things that your athletes want to do when they grow up, if it's not basketball. Like they didn't exist when you and I were in college 20 years ago, right? Like industries didn't exist. Uh, The top five most desirable companies to work for were not even imagined at the time. So how are we going to raise our kids to be ready for a world that doesn't exist yet? And so that's what our parents were trying to do as well. And because they also come from a very uh, different part of the world in terms of culture and history and war and all this stuff, they just picked the things that was least risk averse, which was yeah. study your ass off and good things will happen. So, um, and, and you did that. And so academics, I think is critically important to understand, um, or teaching rather is critically important to understand why those muscles were still being flexed, even though you were technically teaching, but not necessarily teaching the sport or the, the, the disciplines of, of basketball. So. The first 10 years of your life, you live in Korea, part of it in Jeju, where you had to uh, deal with some of the, the unfortunate situations of, of being the other kid. Then you move to Springfield and Eugene, which are uh, a different part of America. Um, you know, And as uh, most people know, that part of Oregon, uh, not very diverse, uh, but a lot, the dominant uh, race is white folks. Mm-hmm. And then where do you go and how was that experience going from Springfield, Oregon to New York City? You know, again, just to nerd out on the sports piece of it, um, you know, we just this I know you said this may uh, air in mid December, but we just saw the NBA draft. And I had this moment um, where, man, what if um, what if we as a society celebrated teachers like we celebrate NBA basketball players? So for me, the draft was in January in my apartment complex. I'm a fifth year student in Oregon. You know, my two roommates have you know gone home. So I'm, I'm there by myself and I had just gone through the fall interview process. I don't have a job except for the accounting job back up in Boeing. I don't want to be a desk. I don't want to be pushing paper. Um, and so I get the letter from Teach for America that says, congratulations, you've been accepted to the New York City Corps. You will be a middle school math teacher. 
And I, I didn't have David Stern or, you know, Adam Silver <laughs> to go shake hands with, but I did a, like a fist pump, like, come on, let's go. Like by myself in this apartment where I felt like I was getting drafted, you know, this is it. And, and I'll never forget, you know, they, I graduate, they said, as soon as you graduate, you go to Houston, Texas. Mm, and this yeah. is before they had split up the training into different sites, all 1000 of the teachers who were accepted, predominantly recent grads, um, were at university, university of Houston campus. And I had never been around the core other people who were as passionate as I was about trying to bring about social change and through education in this particular case. And, you know, it's, it's, it would almost be like that rookie orientation, right? And these are guys that you're rubbing shoulders with that'll be future, you know, hall of famers. Um, but you know, the best and the brightest are giving up two of two of their years to go serve in underprivileged places in rural or urban areas. So it was incredibly just um, motivating, inspiring. And then what happens is then you get sent out on your own and you just fall flat on your face. <laughs> and you, you hit reality every day because they sent me out to the South Bronx. Um, predominantly African-American, Hispanic, a lot, lot more diverse. Again, you talked about the diversity within Asian Americans. You talk about it's, it wasn't just the Puerto Ricans and Dominicans. You had the Hondurians, the Guatemalans, you know, there was just, you know, incredibly diverse. And then there was me, um, the only Asian teacher that these kids had seen. Um, so I go into, I step into a classroom, yeah, seventh grade class prior year, they had lost, they had, managed to chase away, scare away three different teachers. Wow. So immediately I'm getting tested from day one. You know, there's maybe 35 students on my roster to 30 chairs. That, that was not in my Houston Institute training. You know, I, I taught <laughs> summer school and there was like 11 kids and I only taught them for an hour and 15 minutes. I'm thinking to myself, this is easy. And I go into a middle school situation where, um, you know, they, they were so underperforming the, at the end of my first year, the chancellor at New York City, you know, Department of Ed decided to phase out the school. So at the end of my first year, they're telling me that the school would no longer cease to exist two years from now. Wow. That we won't take any incoming sixth graders. We'll just, you know, take the seventh and eighth yeah. graders. And then by your third year, you're just going to graduate the eighth graders and move on and close the school. It was that bad. Wow. Um, and But at the same time, again, the core of who I am, the first 10 years in South Korea, you know, as a society, we value teachers. We say teachers are, it's one of the most noble professions. You, right. know, you, you give an honorific at the end of the title. Um, and so something in my core said, you won't, you will not disrespect me. You will not walk over me. I'm not going anywhere. I'm the child of immigrants, you know, Pam Jin and, you know, Myungja Cho, who left everything in Korea and worked our ass off to provide for us i'm not leaving like i'm here you're gonna have to deal with me so um so yeah i had an incredible run three years um but a big part of that was you know just getting the street cred early on i mm. feel like i've told the story a thousand times but my second day i went out to the schoolyard i scanned the, i scanned the basketball court during recess during lunch break and i picked the best player called him out, <laughs> played him one-on-one. -on -one. And this is seriously out of just a movie scene where the kids are just surrounding you, right? You can see New York City, South Bronx. And I proceed to beat him. Kids go wild. 
Mr. Cho has game. Yo, like, let's go. And like, I, you know, I was flat, you know, floating in air going back to <laughs> the, you know, the math class that I just struggled to teach, you know, the period before, but the kids were ready to listen to me. And so that's, that's when I knew that, that all those years of having played, I thought I had wasted yeah. uh, when I was in college because I wasn't playing in collegiately. I'm not in the league. <laughs> you know, what am I doing? But I realized that all those years spent on the blacktop in Springfield, Oregon, of all places, um, came to serve me and help me in the street top uh, in the classroom of New York City. The, the leadership lesson there that I'm hearing, Marshall, is you have to know your audience and you have to talk in not only the technical language, but in the context that the people that you want to communicate something to must understand is used to understanding, right? Many people in your situation may have gone in and said, I am the teacher. I am older than you. I know more than you. You, I demand respect or try it in a different way. But obviously you had the innate advantage of having known basketball, understanding culture and the actual athletic abilities, but you resonated with those students from a contextual perspective that most people don't have the ability to and you use that which is literally coaching right mm -hmm. coaching isn't telling somebody you have to shoot this way it's helping that person understand starting from where they are knowing what skills they have to come to that realization on your own and, and that's coaching that's true about coaching whether it's in an athletic sense or is in a personal sense or is in a professional sense you have to understand who you're talking to and you have to figure out a way to resonate get them to resonate and, and I think that's critically important to understanding your success story is that you've had, I mean, and we, we're not even done with talking about the places that you've lived and the experiences that you've had, mm -hmm. right? So on paper, you might be, somebody might look at your resume and go, okay, this, this Asian guy is from Springfield, Oregon. He went to U of O and now he teaches at Lake as, Lake as we go. Cool, right? Like it's a very, it's an Oregon story. Yeah. But we fail to realize that all your lessons actually were learned in literally other parts of the world. And that all weave in together for you to under and for you to be the person that can speak not just actual technical languages, but the human language of context, which I think is one of the most underrated skills that people have, which is empathy and caring and, and you know, relationships. And so you, you start teaching. And so tell me when basketball came back into your life. And was that always there for you to want to come back to basketball? Um no, I, I mean, I really didn't expect it. I, I thought, you know, when I was in the South Bronx, it, it was nice. You know, it, it was, and I, I was living in Central Harlem at the time, 118th and Lenox. So just up the street from the housing projects that's famous for having the basketball courts called the Kingdom. Mm. And, you know, 30 blocks down from Rucker Park. And, you know, and I, I, I would play a lot of pickup basketball at Morningside Park and whatnot. Wow. So that, that part of the, the passion was always there. So I was playing and, and I was learning about the neighborhood and all that stuff. Again, you know, anytime I go into those spaces, I, I, I was the only Asian. Um, but, you know, and that's, that, that part felt natural to me because I was the only Asian growing up in Springfield. My brother and I were the only Korean. Yeah. My sister was the only Korean. So that was, that felt from going from a predominantly white to predominantly black. I think that's a theme that, that we can revisit later because yeah. in a black and white world, I say this often during this time as an Asian American coach, I didn't know where I fit in and there right. wasn't somebody that I could, I could look up to, you know? So when I stepped onto a court, it, I had gone that whole evolution of being called Bruce Lee to Jackie Chen to Jet Li to finally, thank God Yao Ming shows up. 
So now <laughs> seven six Yao Ming and five eight Marshall Chore are the same. I show up, yo Yao Ming, what's up? Let's go. You know, you're on my team. So I go to Yao Ming. And by the time At least those were like along, positively associated though, right? No, absolutely. No, I But those were like I, badass. If if you're ever gonna be called like stereotypical Asian names, those are that's good company. That wasn't they the, are. The, you know, they I are. won't even say the derogatory names that you they could have called you, right? Sure. But like, I mean, you get that you get that on occasion, but for the most sure. part, you know, I, I, you don't really experience those on the on the basketball court unless yeah. you're a jerk. You know, right. I think if you're a good teammate, <laughs> you're sharing the rock, you share the sugar, and you know you're you're good about giving out high fives. You know, for the most part, they're going to accept you. But um, no, you're right. I, I I don't mean to say that in a way where you know I, I didn't appre- I didn't appreciate it. It was something. It's you know, I, I don't want to say it was better than nothing, but you're right that it wasn't, it could have been worse. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I played a lot of pickup, but you know, by the time I went, you know, I left that school, as I was telling you, it was phasing out. Mm. I needed to know that again, being a competitive person that I couldn't just leave this inner city education with that experience of a failed school. Um, mm. that I knew that, that it could be done well. And so, uh, fortunately I found the school charter school, four blocks up from where I was living. Again, I was so immersed into a failed school system, a situation where I was working 60 hours a week and, and, you know, pouring my heart out into my students, doing home visits, Saturday academies, going, taking them bowling, taking them to Yankee games and everything that I could to really make it a good experience for the kids who, you know, otherwise wouldn't have had that. Um, but I found a charter school I didn't even know existed just four blocks up from where I lived. Um, and we ended up having an amazing experience. It was a K through eight school. They had this married couple where the wife was his principal. The, the husband found, founded a nonprofit that raised millions of dollars and poured it into this charter school. And so we were able to place a lot of students into boarding schools and prep schools all along the East coast. And I, I feel very proud of, to have played a small part in that and and knowing that after another three years I was able to leave that educational inner city educational space with some success but that was the school future leaders institute you know I have a photo of the team on my desk right now for the listeners you won't be able to see it but you know I'm showing Jerry the the photo of the first team and the only team that I won a championship with in all my years we won the New York City charter school championship uh in my sixth year um, but the, I was fortunate that the founder of the school came in one day and knew that I was, <laughs> I was the only teacher on staff that would play pick up basketball with the kids during recess. <laughs> so they say, here you go, Marshall, you're, you're our new boys basketball coach. <laughs> so that's how it started. Um, another uh-huh. fairy tale ending. We end up winning this, you know, championship, a semifinal game. We, we go to overtime. We somehow pull out the win and the kids carry me off the court and they're on their shoulders. <laughs> And I'm thinking to myself, like, is this, am I dreaming? Is this real? But, you know, I cried. <laughs> it was such an emotional game. Uh, but I, I got the bug. Uh, yeah. And so when, you know, as I was finishing up my sixth year, I'd started, I had been dating my wife at the time. Uh, you know, she was my girlfriend, but uh, had been dating my wife who was living in Mozambique, Africa. Uh, she was wow. in the public, international public health field um, working for Save the Children. So I followed her out to Mozambique and on the heels of this, you know, two years of coaching middle school basketball. That's crazy. Wow. What, what did you do in Mozambique? 
what was life out there like? It, it, uh, I took that first year as a sabbatical. It's a former Portuguese colony. If you if you drive through the down, you know, uh, the main streets of Maputo, the capital city, you can stand on the intersection of Kimir Song and Mao Zedong, or you know, Vladimir Lenin is just down the street. Um, so there's this, you know, socialist, you know, communist um, leftover from the, you know, the colon, the colonial period that they had. But um, we ended up living in a rural area three hours north of the capital city called Shai Shai. Um, my wife was working all day and I was stuck at a house with the, with the, they call it empregada, which is a, a, a housemaid. We had a house guard and I had this huge uh, backyard with the dirt field um, that I didn't, I saw a huge tree towards the back of it. Um, and I was just going crazy. I couldn't speak the language and we want to talk about identity. I had put on a pedestal what it meant to be an inner city school teacher, right? I took probably a, an unhealthy amount of pride in that identity yeah. that was stripped away. Um, so that first year was really hard. But what I ended up doing was I, I bought a basketball rim, I found the backboard, and I, I went to my house guard. Again, I don't speak any Portuguese, he doesn't speak English. And I gestured to him to see if he could help me mount this basketball hoop on a tree in our backyard takes out a machete starts chopping down the trees using the handle part <laughs> of the button of a hammer i mean just within two hours i had a basketball hoop in shy shy mozambique and so that was a savior i think i think i you know a lot of us coaches you know we're in it because the game you know game the game loved us back there's a lot of situations yeah. where you love something whether you're an entrepreneur, you're a musician, or whatever, you can love that endeavor. But if it doesn't love you back, you're not going to stay in it. You're not staying in that relationship. Yeah. So, um, so basketball saved me. Um, I would shoot, you know, just to kind of pass the hours. Um, and what would happen is all the neighborhood kids would see this strange Asian man <laughs> shooting, you know, <laughs> throwing a ball up at a rim that they'd never seen before. Just like me, they hadn't seen basketball before, you know. Uh, when I came to America versus, you know, them seeing me in Mozambique. So what would happen is by the time my wife would come back home after a long day's work, whether she was on the field, you know, implementing an HIV AIDS, you know, prevention, like prevention project or rolling out community endeavors, she would come home and there would be 30 kids from the neighborhood <laughs> playing basketball <laughs> in our backyard, no shoes, but they all have, you know, they're all you know, passing the ball around and shooting and having a jolly good time. So she would make fun of me. Connie, my wife, uh, she's a saint. She's allowed me to do this, uh, do this job, but she would say I, I started a daycare. Mozambique. <laughs> 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 um, so yeah, that was my first year in, in this third world country. How did your now wife has, has known you for a long time and has seen you, um, you know, she didn't marry a basketball coach, but you ended up becoming one. Talk to us a little bit about how that was like and the importance of having a partner who believes in the created in the crazy things that doesn't actually have a linear path from where you are and where you think you want to go. Because mm -hmm. basketball saved you, it sounds like, at three different parts in your life. At first, at, at the first school, at the second school, and now at Mozambique, giving you a sense of purpose and, mm -hmm. you know, uh, not even about the street cred from your students, but just you know, a, a reason to um, continue to do what you do, because 
brought in, and it wasn't the basketball, right? It's what basketball stood for, which was community, respect, you know, new skills, teaching, all these muscles that you were building. Um, talk to us a little bit about some of the conversations that you had going growing up, or I guess, you know, uh, going through the relationship with, with Connie. Yeah. yeah. And then like how, how she believed in you through those times. Yeah, she she wasn't a big basketball fan. So we can start there. Um, early in our dating life uh, comes back to me. I, I uh, In high school, I didn't get to shoot very much. I was a traditional point guard. So I would have to distribute the ball and, and, and get our, into our stuff. Um, by the time you you know you come out of college and you're playing in these rec leagues or city leagues, like, oh man, there's no coach telling me what to do or what not to do. So I I, I let the ball fly a little bit, you know. I, I, was, <laughs> I was pretty trigger happy. Um, it's it's like that kid who didn't get to drink soda growing up, you know. All of a sudden they become adults and they you know indulge in you know too much sugar uh, and all that. <laughs> but uh, there was a game where in the Asian basketball league, I, I, I got hot. My teammates were really good, but they kept on feeding me the ball. So I scored like 50, 58 points in the game. I dropped like 10 three-pointers and like, you know, I'm again, 27, 28, feeling pretty good about myself. Come up, come to my wife, join, join the dinner that she was out with her friends on. And, and she said, Oh, how'd the game go? And I said, uh, you know, I, I was still kind of in shock. And, and the high, of, you know, you just, it was that one night where you couldn't miss anything. Uh, I think I scored like 58 points tonight. And she literally turns to me and says, is that a lot? Is that a big deal? <laughs> Are you special now? Like, should I really date you? Like, or is this the breakup? Uh, uh, but uh, yeah, I've been, you know, I've been really grateful for that because she can really cut through the BS, you know, I think, especially even now, as I'm making my way up, there's a lot of people who can get caught up in whether I'm the head coach at Lake Oswego, or I work with USA basketball, all, all the all the things that the world pat you on the back for. Yeah. But she knew from the very get go that it was merely a tool that I needed to use um, to impact lives. So she's been, you know, she's been a real rock in that sense and supporting me, even though you know, it hasn't been easy. There's been a lot of sacrifices, whether in time or finances. Um, but in, it's really at the end of the day, it's been sort of a ministry. So, um, yeah, I've I just been blessed in that same sense. Just like I, I'd, I think if you if you look at the fact that, like, there aren't that many of us right now, at least from our generation in it. It's because we don't have people who encourage us along the way, right? Yeah. Um, and I've been blessed. Yeah. I, I know that I, I'm in this now because I had parents who supported it. And then later on, my wife who, who supports what I'm doing now. I think you bring up a good point, And that's what I'm hopefully is one of the things that we accomplish by sharing stories like yours, Marshall, is to share stories like yours that put a face to a name, to a voice, to a job that, frankly, many folks out there might want to pursue mm-hmm. and we don't have the inherent advantages of friend's dad or dad's friend who has these jobs because most of our parents didn't they didn't grow up in this country right so whether you work on the coaching side of sports and we're starting to see it a little bit more you know i have some friends that um, are coaching at the local high school level or in other areas and also on the business side of things whether you work for an athletic department at a university or for a professional team we are starting to see more folks that look like me and you, um, especially the younger brothers and sisters out there who are, um, you know, choosing sports as a career because they see it as a viable option for them. But 
it is really the belief that you can do it, especially when you see somebody who does it first, which I think is critically important. You know, representation isn't everything, but just like you mentioned a little bit earlier with the Teach for America brochure, like if you didn't see that woman and who knows how she ended up on that brochure, right? Mm -hmm. Like this story doesn't end where it is now, right? It doesn't, you don't go to New York City, you don't do any of this stuff. And so as, as we say quite often, um, but not enough, share your stories, people, because you actually don't know it's the ripple effect of that one moment of you sharing your story that we will never know the full impact of that, right? Um, that woman in the photo never knew you, still doesn't know you, changed your life because yeah. she happened to post for a photo that some marketing person at TFA decided that's probably the one that we want to use for the diversity photo. And so yeah. there you go. It's equally important, even more so, than to take that privilege and to understand the perhaps unfair burden of you representing far more um, by what position you have than, say, somebody who doesn't have the burden of representing an entire continent, per se. And so that's also important, right? Because we see too far or too many times where people look the part, but they don't necessarily use that platform to better the members of their own community or to be a shining light. So let's talk about basketball coming back into your life and share with briefly how, so if you look at martial, like you just keep going in one direction in the world, right? You go from Korea to Oregon, to New York, to Mozambique. Yeah. How, how did you come back? I guess, um, tell us about the transition back and how did you get involved in high school sports and the USA basketball program back home? Yeah. So, you know, even before we ended up in Chai Chai, uh, when I knew that I was moving to Mozambique, I had done some research. What could, what could I possibly do? You know, what am I going to do with all my time? <laughs> I was pretty burned out at the time. So I, I really was looking forward to a year off to learn the language and figure out what I, what I wanted to pivot towards. Um, I had the good fortune of getting a chance to work for the Basketball Without Borders camp that was sponsored by the NBA. Um, I just sent a bunch of emails, got rejected, you know, and then as luck would have it, you know, again, whether you're talking about that woman that I saw in Teach for America, or in this case, it was a, a random person at FIBA who in a roundabout way put my email in front of a person at the NBA who happened to have played collegially here just up the street at Lewis and Clark College. So when he saw that there was a guy who from Oregon uh, caught in New York moving to Mozambique, I think it intrigued him. So he allowed me to be a volunteer coach at this camp. He said, go ahead, you know, uh, show up and we'll put you to work. I get to Mozambique. I say goodbye to my wife literally like a week after we had been there. I hop on a bus to Johannesburg. And if you know, you know, I, again, I taught in inner city South Bronx with people, you know, this is year, early 2000. So this is, we're not talking the 80 South Bronx, but it was still rough. Yeah. You know, you had to be careful where you're going. But Johannesburg is a whole nother deal. Pockets of Joburg where it's really scary. But <laughs> I hopped on a bus, downtown Joburg, and somebody that I didn't know, a missionary there, picked me up, drove me to the suburbs of Johannesburg where the American International School is. And I end up, you know, volunteering at this camp and they give me the assignment. And it's the first day I, I read the letter and I'm at the shot blocking and rebounding station with Manute Bull and Dikembe Mutombo. <laughs> yeah, so. That's again, cool. One of, those, 
one of those moments where is this real life? You know, is this happening? Um, I also was paired with, um, it turns out, you know, those are two literal giants that they right. came from Africa. Um, but I also had the good fortune of being um, part, uh, assigned to that team with BJ Johnson of the Houston Rockets, um, who actually recently passed away. He was in the news, he was in a bike accident. Um, and the entire NBA and NBA Global Academy has been mourning this loss of this person who really was just an amazing soul and, and somebody who had a heart for the continent of Africa and who, again, you know, you get into a place like the NBA and, and it's intimidating. And I, I had the good fortune of having somebody who just took me in and said, hey, you're, I don't know who you are, but you're a part of the family. You know, mm. that sense of belonging and acceptance that it, it was familiar to how my grade school teachers in Springfield took me in, how the South Bronx community and the, and the block that I lived on in Harlem took me in. And BJ did that for me. And, and I think people like that remind me why I went into it because I saw him as a professional scout making a living doing basketball full time. And, and again, I didn't, it wasn't an Asian American that I was looking up to, but it was a, it was a strong, you know, kind, um, inclusive African American, you know, scout who leaves behind this huge legacy. Um, but I, so that was, that was my first kind of a, fairy tale moment <laughs> getting to work that camp where I had an inkling like, hey, I could do this full time. This would be fun. So I did that. You know, I, I got to work that camp for three years. The next three years in Mozambique, I, I did all sorts of things. I started a, a basketball team at the American International School of Mozambique where I was teaching. Um, I worked with the local clubs. I worked with the junior national team. I ran coaches clinics and all of that stuff. And by the time my three years was coming up, um, I had managed, that's a whole nother story, but long story short, I had managed to get Mike Jones of the, the Matha Catholic High School, one of the most powerhouse programs in, in America, to come and do a clinic for the kids that I had been working with. Oh. And so him, along with Tony Dorado, who was the national manager for high school Nike, uh, high school basketball for Nike, they came out, I hosted them, and as luck would have it, like two days into the trip, Mike turned to me one night while we were feasting on you know prawns and you know steak you know on a on the on the indian ocean at a five-star hotel uh dinner and he turned to me and he said if you ever come back to the states i want you to join my coaching staff wow so this is the most storied high school basketball program in the country morgan wooten was the first you know high school coach to be inducted into the hall of fame mike mike jones takes over for that hall of famer and does a phenomenal job carrying on the tradition and you know and he's telling me, yeah, you want to coach? You want to go coach in college? Come apprentice at the Matha. Do, do you so, know why he said that to you? Um, you know, he and I, we talked about it. Um, I, I just think he, he saw the passion for the game that I had with the kids. And again, you know, not, again, I went from middle of nowhere to the most prestigious high school. So high school. Right. Right. So this is like, and I've, I've heard the scheme come up in your interviews, you know, where, you know, our parents want us to go to the IVs or, or Stanford, right? Like I am going to the, the Stanford or the <laughs> IV of high school basketball. If I just fame drop the math, then the doors will just magically open for me. Right. Right. 
Um, but it was three years prior to that where, again, I'm telling you of a story of running a daycare on a dirt field <laughs> on, a, on a basketball hoop that I, you know, nailed to a tree. Right. And, and so it's, it's, it's a theme that comes up, at least in our coaching profession a lot. I don't know other places, but, you know, we say in the coaching world, big time is where you're at. Mm. You know, make, the, make where you're at the big time. And I did that. And it led me to the math. I mean, look, it's, it's such a valuable lesson, Marshall, because we often obsess and, and so much more so in the age of social media that you and I didn't grow up with, but we had to adjust to it is this arrival fallacy at scale where we are led to believe that if only I can get to this school, this workplace, this level of whatever, everything's going to be great, which then mm-hmm. binarily also makes us feel like crap because if we're nowhere but there then life is a failure and it's hard to see what the next step or the next three steps in life is going to be because life doesn't work that way um and yet we as human beings have decided to put on pedals and celebrate the very few which are statistical zeros in in the sense of the seven billion people in the world who had a very linear path almost set out for them due to their privilege to say, well, she went to this school, she did this job, then she did this, and she did this, and now she's there. So that's the way that we're going to define success uh, unilaterally. But that's not the case, right? If somebody met you in 2008, yo, you're like running a basketball camp. Like there's no way it goes, okay, so 10 years ago, you are here. Today, you are here. Tell me in in your wildest imagination how that marshal becomes this marshal which is amazing if you think about the fact that wherever you are, whoever is listening to this, wherever you are today and wherever you're going to be in 10 years from now is actually something out of your imagination right now. You can't know where you're going to be in 10 years. So you can only focus on the opportunity that's in front of you. Be the whatever the heck you are right now the best way that you can because you don't know where those opportunities are going to lead. So many of us, uh, myself included, when you're not where you think you should be, we get entitled, we get cocky, and that leads into being really bad employees, just bad attitude. I deserve more, we say often. But somebody like you, if you approached your opportunities with that sort of entitlement, you don't get to where you are. You humbled yourself and you, and you did hell. You, you were literally at, at the southern tip of Africa running, right? And, and so yeah. that is such a valuable lesson in addition to a lot of the things that you've shared already that I think is that people should really think about and go, okay, like you have no idea, right? Like think about the year 2020, even a year ago, guys, no Mm -hmm. idea what we would have gone through, uh, the world that would have changed. Um, And then we long for, we always say like, oh, I wish it was pre-COVID. But you know what? Pre-COVID, you filled your mind and your your heart with other distractions and other excuses. And now if you're like, if only we could go back to life the way it was, I could do so much more. Think about what you can do today because you're going to ask yourself the same damn thing a year from now. And then so let's talk about what this has meant for you going from the math and then coming back home to your home state, um, to Lake Oswego, um, prominent, prominent places, um, household names in the basketball world. Um, and then talk to us specifically from the perspective of your, your peer group and the other head coaches and the other people that are in the room. Um, you're no stranger to being the only in many rooms. You earn the respect of other people. Um, especially different parts through your actual basketball skills and in the, in, in the complicated fraternities of basketball coaching lineage and all these things, you know, did, did the math, uh, cred help you just get recognized when you walked in once you got that opportunity 
or did you do you still continue to feel that you have to prove yourself and that when people don't know who you are, you walk into a room, they don't automatically assume that you're the head coach because you don't look the part based on what we've been told. Yeah, that that part's probably not going to change for me for a while. Um, I turned 45 in May, but I still think sometimes I think I behave like a 25 year old. <laughs> I, I have to figure out how to navigate my aging process and acting my age. Um, you know, Jerry, like I, I can't say that I, I'm not immune to everything that you just talked about that linear path, because, you know, 10 years ago, I, I did say to myself and to my wife, I'm going to be the first Asian American division one basketball coach. So in that sense, I, history was repeating itself. Like when I was in college, I'm going to get a business degree. It's a linear journey. Like you said, you're in. And it's, it's no different than what a coach looks at from season to season, right? We're going to go win the league title. We're going to win the state title. And this is how we get there. And you don't know what happens. There's injuries, there's transfers, there's all sorts of things that, you know, variables that you can't predict. Um, but I fell into that trap. So when I, when I was at DeMatha, you know, I had an opportunity to hop onto University of Portland. So I was a mm. Division One on the Division One coaching staff as a director of basketball operations. That's how you get your foot in the door. There's only three assistant coaches that are allowed in addition to the head coach. And those four, by rule, I know a lot of, there's a lot of division one programs that don't follow that, you know, rule to the T, but I, I didn't want to go into the collegiate world under a program where I would have to compromise my values and my integrity. Mm. So that also meant that we followed the rules, but we did a lot of losing, unfortunately. So that was a wake up call, but you know, I, I went on that track for a while. And what you realize is that, you know, I don't know, again, I, I'm, I'm not versed in other, you know, professional, you know, endeavors, but, you know, even for med, med school, for example, it's a very linear path. And then you come out on the other end, the doctor. Now there's right. some people who might go into public health and go into other fields, right. And, and expand on that uh, core, you know, um, knowledge. But, you know, what I found pursuing that singular goal was that I closed off a lot of the rest of the opportunities in the world that, that I had really had a passion for. So what, what it made me realize when I did step away and I went back into high school coaching is that my world opened up all over again. So for example, I'm on the lower end of the totem pole, you know, working my way up in division one basketball at a mid-major college. Well, you know, I had all these connections to USA basketball that I was doing volunteer opportunities for. I no longer could do them because it wouldn't, you know, it'd be a conflict of interest or, you know, and so those doors closed where when I came back, it opened up again, you know, um, it meant that more flexibility so I can go on a one-off trip. You know, I, I've been running a, the camp for Yao Foundation of all these years after being called <laughs> Yao Ming on the, on the floor, <laughs> I got to meet him. He knows who I am That's and cool. I'm running, you know, camp for his amazing foundation, you know, every August. Um, so I go to China, I get to go, you know, through the state department. I, I go to Moldova, you know, to a region wow. called Transnistria, running a clinic with Ruthie Bolton, who's a rock star because she's a gold medalist and I'm tagging along. And so there's all these amazing global experiences that I was able to have that made me realize that I'm not just a local high school coach, but. I am a global citizen. I have a sense of what it means to not belong having been an immigrant. And so how can I, and what, what I'm wrestling with now isn't like you said, well, 
10 years from now, I will be the first, what, X, Y, Z. No, I'm not doing that anymore. I, I am, and especially if anything with COVID has taught us is, how do we have impact today? Right. How do we have it right now? Um, again, claim to fame with Kevin Love is that, you know, he went here, you know, he went to UCLA, he won a world championship. The most impactful work that he's doing today is through bringing awareness about mental health. And mm -hmm. I know you've addressed that here in some of your episodes with your guests. It's such a huge issue in the Asian American, you know, population. The yeah. pressure that does come with the ac academic expectations and professional expectations. You know, I, I think I see that even at, at my high school because it is a high academic school. Yeah. And it's a high athletic, you know, school. So um, the amount of pressure and stress that our kids are under, especially during this time, has made me think about how do I make my kids feel like they belong? How are they accepted for who they are? Um, and how do we let everybody know that we're all going to go through this together? Talk to us about the most important thing that you've learned, um, obviously, with, with the context of the year that we're going through. You, you've, you, you might be one of the very few people who've had a chance to mentor young people in such diverse parts of the world that has given you a unique lens into how we're so different, but more so how we're the same, even through all the, the divis, um, divisiveness that, that the media tries to portray. What, what is a unifying human lesson that you've learned through the Bronx, through Harlem, through Mozambique and Joe Berg, and then now back home? It's just all about relationships. You know, it's, that's it. That's, that's what you get to have. And I, I think beyond that, you know, in the, in the coaching world, again, this is really different from corporate um, and some of the other interviews you may have had. Like the word family gets tossed around a lot. Mm -hmm. Hey, we're a unit. We're a family. We're the Laker family. We're the Blazers family. We're, you know. Um, but expanding that definition of what family means has been a big deal for me. Um, mm. I, uh, I've, I've been, I've binge watched eight episodes of Ted Lasso last night. I'm saving the last two episodes for tonight, but I don't know if you've mm. heard of the show. It's a you mm -hmm. know, comedy on um, Apple TV. Um, Jason Sudeikis, you know, is the lead. The story goes, you know, he's a American football coach, wins a national championship and he gets hired to be the English premier league soccer coach. Like it's an absurd Setup, right <laughs> and this guy is just a happy-go-lucky um and i'm watching this show last night um and he says something like oh winning and losing doesn't matter and the owner that had just hired him is like what are you talking about right um and so even from that absurd scenario i it was just another reminder it really doesn't right now yeah so we're not going to have a season so what is you know everything that i've worked for in the last five years and by the way you know, don't get me wrong. We're good. <laughs> like, I don't mean that in an arrogant way. We're good because we put the work in and we put the work in because, you know, I, part of it, again, I'm the leader setting that tone and I, yeah. I can't help, but not work hard. I want my students who, again, they, they're predominantly white. We have, you know, we're not as diverse as, you know, other places of the world, but, you know, I want them to understand that that's, that comes from the fact that their coach is a, is an immigrant and has an immigrant work ethic. And, and, you know, on the other piece of it, understanding where each of those kids are coming from, you know, a lot of the, a lot of them get to have the privilege, you know, it's the burden that, that we talk about 
you know, that we put on ourselves as the second generation or whatnot. Um, you know, my, my student athletes have that too, because a lot of their parents work their tails off so right. that they could, you know, they could live in Lake Oswego, attend the Lake Oswego school district. Um, so in that sense, we connect and that makes us family, you know, um, cause they know where I'm coming from. I know where they're coming from and it didn't matter race or gender. Um, so yeah, I, 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 that, that's the biggest thing for me right now. It's all about relationships. It's all about family. On the topic of family, you also mentioned, um, in a concept that is familiar to so many of us about honor and duty as the firstborn of a firstborn of a firstborn, right? Um, how do you, how do, how do your parents and your siblings view you and your progression and, and sort of how, how cool is it that they have seen you go through this progression and come back to the thing that you truly loved as a kid, albeit in, in a wild and crazy detour as it has been? Yeah, no, they, they've been super supportive. Um, my, my sister, actually, she followed me out to New York City. She's, she's an incredible teacher. Um, she taught in the South in the, in Brooklyn, um, for 10 plus years, um, right across the street from the Marcy projects. Um, my brother is two years younger than me, but he followed me out to New York. He got the New York city bug. Um, and, uh, he ended up becoming a Michelin award-winning chef. He's a James Beard nominee. Um, oh, wow. Peter Cho is my brother. Um, yeah, so he ended up being, you know, pretty accomplished in his own right. So. In that sense, our, our family has each of us taken a unique journey. Um, but all along, they've been encouraging. My parents have encouraged us to follow our own path and chart our own path. So um, that's been, it's just, it's, it's, it's been such a gift to be able to reunite in Portland, raise our kids here and yeah. um, spend time with each other. Wait, extra meaningful that both of you guys, is your sister back in Oregon as well? She is. Yeah. So, so all of you guys uh, sort of came home in a way. Yeah, and that 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 again is a whole other story. My um, my second year at University of Portland again, I'm I'm on my way to trying to be a Division One head coach, and my mom got diagnosed with uh, diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. So that was in November. Um, you know, I go through the season. I, I'll never forget it. We, you know, in the, in in Division One athletics, you. You know, you only get 30 games a year. And one of them, we ended up beating Gonzaga, who were nationally ranked. You know, one of those moments where the students are rushing the court. Yeah. And and I was just, I didn't know if my mom was going to make it. And it really, it, it makes you look in the mirror and say, what is this all for? So I had one of those moments. Um, when that happened, my brother immediately quit his job in New York City and moved out to Portland. My sister followed six months later. So, you know, I think... I don't know how many of your listeners are older, you know, generations before us, parents, you know, who who might be tuning in. But um, I think for my parents, it was, you know, that, that was the most gratifying thing that they had poured into our lives. And we weren't ready, you know, we were ready to drop what we were doing, you know, as soon as, you know, they, they were in need. Um, so that was, that's been six years now. She's still fighting it. Um, we are very grateful for the kind of care that she's getting, but that kind of adversity, you know, brought our family together stronger and brought us back geographically to Portland, Oregon. How's his restaurant doing through all the stuff that's going on in 2020? Um, it's tough. You know, he, uh, they had a following, you know, it's, uh, the restaurant's name is Han Oak. He, 
he changed the game here. And I think that's as a, as a coach, I think about that a lot, you know, um, whether it's Mike D'Antoni with seven seconds or less, or, you know, um, uh, Nick nurse with the Raptors who used his, you know, just diverse background to, to, you know, run zone defenses, things that people hadn't seen before. Um, I'm intrigued by it. Right. Um, and so my brother did that, you know, he ended up finding a, a space on Craigslist thanks to his wife. He's only open four days, four nights a week, you know, and he's doing things where he might do brunch and it's super popular. And, and when the mood strikes for him, he doesn't want to do it anymore. He stops. And the mainstream media, you know, media folks who cover the restaurant industry, it drives him mad because he's unpredictable. Um, he's doing his own thing. So it's been really neat to see that. Um, but all the, all that creative juices have been really, you know, put to the test because at the end of the day, it's a bottom line business. You're talking about same thing for me. It's about wins and losses out is how the world yeah. judges you. So same thing for him. He's probably working, you know, as hard as he did, you know, to earn in one week, what he used to earn in one day is how he put it to me the right. other day. So the restaurant industry really needs our help, but, um, he's, he's figuring it out and, you know, it's just like I told my players, I told my brother and myself and my siblings, I, we'll get out of this, you know, we'll, get, we'll come out on the other end of it. Okay. Yeah, I, I can't um, imagine what he's going through. We, we all have friends in the service industry whose lives have been turned upside down. And, mm-hmm. you know, at least down here in California, more, more restrictions, obviously, across the whole country as, as we try to tackle this and keep people safe. But I can't wait to visit Portland and, and see you and then go to a game and go to your brother's restaurant. Yeah. You know, we, we still have family up there. And in fact, we're supposed to be up there in March um, for a family wedding. But, you know, obviously that was just at the beginning of everything. So we, we call that off. But, um, you know, Portland and the state of Oregon um, obviously has a very, very special place in my heart and our family's heart. And it's really, really great to learn about your story. And you're not done yet. And I love the yeah. fact that you are making the most of what's in front of you and not chasing somebody else's definition of what it what it means to be i, I guess I, I just looked it up you you wouldn't have been the first asian american division one coach anyway because somebody no, beat you my, to that punch this summer no, my, but my good buddy beat me to it mike magpio <laughs> filipino i know him well um i was really proud of him you know I, and again that i that's the thing you learn as a coach i i try to tell my players if you have to be a great teammate. You have to be that person who celebrates another person's success yeah. and trust that the hard work that you put in, your time's going to come. You can't yeah. lose that faith. And I think the best coaches are able to navigate that for their players. So when I saw Mike get hired, I was very happy for him. You know, sometimes the burden of being the first, you know, is really hard. So I just yeah. told him, hey, <laughs> slap him on the back and say, hey, I'm glad it was you, not me. But, pa- pa- uh, pave the road, really make it easier for the rest of us, right? And But, you know, e- even if you don't, get to this proverbial state of accomplishment. You said you measure your your life and the success by the relationships and the concept of family, right? And mm-hmm. we know and we know that you've touched lives literally across the world, which is something that not a lot of people can say, but more importantly perhaps than the global reach of your impact is at what point in these students' lives that you've touched them at perhaps the most vulnerable and most stressful times in their teenage, mm-hmm. adolescent, junior high and, and high school years where they need a role model, they need purpose, they need direction, they need guidance. And so that's what I I take away from this conversation that through just being you and following your passion for basketball 
and, and the opportunities that came, that there are countless young men out there now who are living a different life because of the impact that you've had on them, whether it was through education at the, at the schools that you've taught at or through the love of basketball. And I don't think that's going to ever end because as you were impacted by that random Asian woman on a TFA brochure, somebody's life has been impacted by sitting in on a, on a, on a clinic or seeing you somewhere. Or um, I'm excited for people to hear this story and go, holy crap, like I can do that. Mm-hmm. And, and now when somebody says, we don't do that, we go, no, Marshall's doing that over there and he's doing it at the highest level. So, you know, this has been wonderful, you know, as so many, so many leadership lessons and in, in, in just hidden in, in, in the things that in the shared stories that you're sharing, um, which also too is, Again, people equate sports with the actual playing, and there are so many, so many ways to thrive in the environment and thrive within the environment and the industry without necessarily doing the thing. Be the support system, be the coach, be in this, you know, the the sports apparel industry is so great. And so, you know, get creative. And if that's something that you really, really have to do, think about the ancillary ways that you can stay involved in it because there's so many different ways to express it. And again, the world's going to change in two years and three years, get ahead of it and create your own path, which I think is something that you've demonstrated. It's been really wonderful. Um, would love to help you. Would love to have you help us finish up the show, Marshall, in the same way that we do every show. Um, and then to share something um, that you want to share inspirational or otherwise with our audience by helping to complete the letter, dear Asian Americans. Thanks for that. I, you know, I, I should have prepped. This is, had I, Finished the, all your other interviews, I would have known that this is coming, but my attention span lets me stay for about 40 minutes and I'm on to the next guest. But um, this would be probably the first year Asian Americans uh, locker room pep talk. Um, and so this is, you know, dear Asian Americans, dear team, this is, this is to my team, this is to my squad. Um, you guys are amazing. We are an amazing group. And we're a part of something bigger than us. And we have a game to win out there. Um, we have lives to impact. We have lives to serve. Um, if we pay attention to each other, and you know, the, the broad range of Asian Americans that make up this country, what amazing gifts we have to give to, give to this country, to let them know let the people know here and abroad that we're here, that we've contributed, that we've had victories, and that our setbacks have only made us stronger and prepared us for the next uh, step forward. Um, it's a privilege to be a part of this team. And uh, I'm really grateful that, uh, Jerry, you gave me this time to talk hoops in life and <laughs> give a locker room pep talk. Let's get it. Let's go. And as, as fitting as it has been, for the entire theme of our conversation, it is that you don't do anything on your own, whether it is in sports or in life. Um, if somebody says they're self-made, they're lying to you or they're delusional. Nobody gets anywhere. You don't play a team sport with one person, nor do you win without the support of even the guy who just is on the practice squad. So know your role and know that every role is important. And know that collectively, we need everybody to pitch in to win. Even the folks who keep the gyms clean, even the people who, everything. 
Um, and so even though it may not get the spotlight that you think it deserves, make sure to celebrate all those people along the way because life is a team sport. And the only way that we're going to get through anything, particularly the things that we're going through now, is going to take a team effort. So, Marshall, I, I can't wait to visit um, when when COVID is all behind us. I, I will be rooting for the team from afar and um, know that you have not only touched and changed so many lives across the world, but that also you have and continue to inspire many more to not follow your own exact path, but to have inspired them to choose whatever it is that excites them. Such a beautiful story and can't wait because I don't, I don't think you're even at halftime, man. No, not, not even at halftime. So thank you. Thank you to your wife and your, and your kids uh, for, for giving you this time to spend with us today and um, all the best to your family, particularly to your mother and uh, really excited to uh, visiting you and, and seeing you in person in Oregon soon. All right. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. That's a great story. Thank you again to Marsha for joining us. Apologies about the audio uh, buzzing there at the end. You know, I am a big fan of basketball. And I think a lot of us that grew up uh, watching 90s basketball, we saw Yao Ming, we saw Jeremy Lin. And we always wonder, like, where do we fit? Where do we as Asian Americans fit in the world of basketball and in a sport that we genuinely love? And as with all things, it certainly may not be at the player level, but at the at the, at the staff level, at the coach level, and maybe sometimes even at the ownership level that we can be represented. And so I want to thank Marshall for for being who he is and for really allowing us to be represented in a sport where we don't really see much of each other, but do it in an authentic way where he is authentically Korean-American in a sport where most of his players are not, where most of the fans are not. And, and so props to him and really want to thank him for for that if you found this story insightful and inspiring, we encourage you to share it out to whoever you want and whoever you can. Uh, tag us at Dear Asian Americans or hashtag Dear Asian Americans, wherever you can, and we'd love to engage with you. Send us a note through the Instagram DM box at Dear Asian Americans or simply shoot us an email, hello at Dear Asian Americans, and we'd be happy to engage. Again, uh, join us at the Asian Podcast Awards this Sunday, December 27th at 4 p.m. Pacific. You can learn more at asianpodcastawards.com. And we look forward to sharing our very final episode of 2020 with you next week, episode 91, as we march on towards episode 100 on our one-year anniversary on March 2nd of next year. Thanks again for tuning in. Really appreciate you making time for us today. As always, wishing you all the health and all the happiness that you ever want in your life. And we'll see you next time. This has been your host, Jerry Wan. And thank you for tuning in to Dear Asian Americans.